Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and all this month we're talking about drones or unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs. With me to discuss that is Professor Tom Scott from the University of Bristol. Tom, you've been in this area for a while. How has the technology for drones developed over the last few years? Uh, the progression of technology has been staggering. So I first started using drones um, quite shortly after the Fukushima nuclear disaster. And at that stage, I had bought um, essentially a, a drone platform that we had to do quite a lot of work on, which would have represented one of the most advanced drones at the time. Um, but for example, that drone uh, had had quite a, a clunky GPS system, so it wasn't very good at holding its position. Some of the sensors that it would use to work out its altitude were also um, not particularly well developed, so it couldn't hold its, its own height in the air very well. Um, and for things like landing, it was, um, it was actually simpler at the time because it had long legs to go and do a controlled catch landing rather than risk trying to put it down on its own legs because it had a habit of flipping over and, and, um, and, and basically falling on one of its propellers. And I understand that uh, you use drones in nuclear sites and areas where it's uh, difficult or dangerous to put people. Exactly. So we're really interested in using drones, which, which by the requirement that we're sending them into these very dangerous places, they have to be reliable and they have to be robust. So you've got to be able to trust them. So this is a really important advancement in the technology in terms of, of drones now being able to fly very reliably, either piloted or, or fully autonomously, um, and to be able to give you a guaranteed sort of time in the air, that, that, so you, you're sure you've got enough time for it to come back in one piece. And how far are we along that technology? What are the research challenges now that need to be sorted out in the next few years? Well, there's, there's two major challenges related to my areas of research. So, for example, if you had a, a nuclear a nuclear disaster, think, think Chernobyl, that we've just recently had the Sky Atlantic series from, um, a big release, a plume release of radioactive material that could cover as much as something like 100 square kilometres of land, a big area. Now, how do you use a drone to map where the radiation has gone when currently in many countries you're not allowed to fly beyond line of sight? So... Beyond line of sight technology is a very important area. There's, there's different ways that you can achieve that beyond line of sight capability, whether you're using, for example, satellite collect, connection, you're using the mobile phone network, or you have just incredibly strong radio transmitters as examples. Um, there's different ways to skin that cap. But nonetheless, it's not something that we're routinely allowed to do. Now, we've been doing some beyond line of sight flying um, as part of the University of Bristol program. So, for example, some of the work I've been doing in Chernobyl, um, by necessity, has to be beyond line of sight because we're overflying areas which would be potentially lethal for human beings to go into. Um, so it's technology that I think everyone can see it needs to happen, um, but it's not. We're not getting to that routine beyond line of sight um, flying um, quite quite at the moment. I think what's required is um, good solid demonstrations of the technology. Um, and to really bang the drum about how, how safe and reliable these systems can be. And it's interesting to hear your views on to what extent the technology is already safe enough and what we need now is to move towards uh, a, an, an easier regulatory regime or to what extent the technology still needs to be improved and made more robust. 
Yeah, and I think part of the argument is based on the, let's say, the mass of your airframe that you're using. Um, if you've got a very small light drone and you fly that beyond line of sight and it, it hits a tree or it hits the side of a building and comes down, then what's the implication? Well, the implication I would argue is that you've broken your drone, but because the drone only weighed 249 grams, that it wasn't a problem for the tree or the building or necessarily for a person that it, it, it might have fallen on, for example. But if, if you're working with an airframe that's 25 kilograms, it's a completely different question. So I think there's an aspect of the um, reliability and robustness requirements might necessarily be different for different classes of vehicles. One of the issues raised by the recent House of Commons Select Committee report um, is for electronic conspicuity of drones, or in simple language, knowing where the things are. How ready is that technology, both in the drones themselves and in ground systems? Well, it, it's an interesting one. So, um, for example, with um, DJI drones, for example, um, DJI sells detection equipment for spotting drones, and that's that's partly because they're their own drones are giving off um, signals as to where they are. Um, now, people can get around that by, by making their own drones, um, using their own electronics, so that they have systems that are, um, let's say, electronically, they're very, very quiet. And, and that's part of the problem for, for secure sites, um, would be things like drone incursions for people that want to um, get, get some information from facilities that they shouldn't have access to, for example, is, is how do you detect them? So, it's a situation where you can um, enforce a regulation for anyone that has a drone to make sure that drone has a transponder or a transmitter so that you can tell where they are. But that doesn't actually really solve the threat issue that might be there because there's no chance that the bad guys are ever going to conform with that kind of legislation. So there's an advantage certainly to doing that, but, but in terms of the main security threats posed by drones, it doesn't really solve that. So you're beholden then to having... Um, a multitude of different technologies and we've seen that, that lots of these different technologies are coming out in terms of how do you detect drones from a distance and work out where they are if they actually don't want to be found and that, that can be quite challenging often um, a lot of the work is based on the fact that they're assuming that the drone is is either being directly controlled so there's a radio link or that that drone even though it might be flying autonomously is sending telemetry data somewhere and therefore is transmitting um, radio frequency signals. And so a lot of the technology for determining where the drone is is essentially um, e EMF detection technologies and directional detection technologies, or you're triangulating between different points. So that, that would be um, one way to do it. You could do it acoustically in terms of the sound of the drones. I know it's been a challenge for lots of the manufacturers to try and make drones quieter because they're quite noisy, but even the quietest ones on the market are still quite noisy. And, and again, with sensitive equipment, you'd be able to, to triangulate where those drones were as well. And of course, you can use things like directional radar. And if you have a very good directional radar set up, where again, you might have multiple systems for triangulation, um, you would potentially be able to pick up drones. Um, you'd have to differentiate them against birds um, or any other object that could, could be in the air. But again, that, that would be possible because a drone necessarily will probably be moving differently than a bird would in terms of its flight path and pattern. So different ways of doing it. And, and I think um, there's no one technology which would have market supremacy yet. This will come in in the near future. But presumably, 
these are things to tackle people who are trying to avoid being found. But in terms of the people who might accidentally do something silly or currently have drones that don't have transponders or, or those types of technologies, is it reasonable for regulations to say that all, all legitimate drones and legitimate drone users should have drones fitted with these things? Is, is that technology reasonable? Are the weight of these things uh, reasonable to fit within smaller drones? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a good point you raise. What, what I would do is, is slightly question, if people are buying... Um, you know, mass market consumer drones. So I use DJI as the example. DJI um, have have within their software they have geofences, and those geofences electronically will prevent the drone flying inside certain air restricted areas. So if if you have that technology and it's implemented on the drone systems, then why would you need the transponder? Because that means the drone already can't go into the places which are restricted anyway, and that's the risk um, kind of addressed. So if, if, if enough credence is given to that approach, then yes, you don't have to have the extra expense, and it's a, it's a, it's a financial expense, but it's also a weight expense, which I'd argue for many drone enthusiasts is the bigger problem, in that every, every extra gram that you put onto the drone is, is a, you know, uh, tens of seconds off the flight time of the platform, especially if it's very small and light. So that that kind of has to be weighed up. And I'd argue, you know, the electronic geofencing, as long as it's implemented on those systems reliably, I think that's a very good solution to the problem. And one of the uh, some of the other risks that have been identified in the recent House of Commons Select Committee report are safety, security, privacy, noise. Uh, and what the government will need to do is balance all the advantages that drones have, um, commercial and health and safety and many other things, against some of these disadvantages. We've talked a little bit uh, about some of the technologies uh, to avoid sort of misuse of drones in terms of security. But, but thinking about some of these other things about safety and privacy and noise and so on, what are the... Uh, contributions that technology can make now and, and going forward to help alleviate some of these concerns? Well, I, I think some of this is um, technological fixes and, and some of this is um, making sure that the, the drone owners are, are, are suitably um, aware of the risks and suitably aware of, of the protocols that they should be following. But specifically, when, when you see people taking... Um, you know, a, a, a drone to a local park, for example, and with lots of people around and maybe children playing a football match 100 metres away, that they'll, they'll take off and maybe they're filming their children play football, for example. Um, you then have quite significant risk because if they're not aware of the fact that, first of all, that's not allowed, <laughs> but they go ahead and do that, you've got potential issue with your, the, you, you, you go to land your drone and a little, ch little child runs up to it and they lose their fingers or a dog does the same thing. Um, so a lot of this comes back to what I would call citizenship in that if people do want to own these electronic items, which are aircraft, in fact, they, they do need to have some kind of, of qualification um, or at least be on a register where in order to be on the register, you pass some kind of safety test or um, such that you know what the rules are and you know what is safe and what isn't safe. I think that's incredibly important. Um, with regards to things like um, 
of privacy laws, um, but also noise as well. I think with regards noise, I think technologically we'll start to, or we'll continue to see drones getting quieter and quieter. I, I, that's without question. In terms of privacy laws, it's a very difficult one to police. Um, but again, for some of these very um, mass manufactured drone technologies, on board in the software, the flight data and the flight paths for every single flight is recorded. And therefore, it would be possible if that, if that information was shared with the police, for example, to show that if you've been hovering over someone's land or if you've been loitering overlooking someone's property, because not only would it show your flight path, it would show, show you the direction the aircraft was, was pointing. And so, again, there's, there's electronic information being stored which could be used if there ever was uh, situations like that. But of course, it, it is something that when you are flying and you are overlooking people's land, because you've got cameras on board and you've got FPV, you, you have the potential to be able to see things that, that people wouldn't be able to see from the ground. One of the things that you mentioned was uh, the need for pilots to be uh, skilled and know what they're doing. And there are certain regulations. In fact, uh, just this month, the Civil Aviation Authority are introducing uh, various different things, including an online test. Do you think the regulations for training drone operators are currently adequate? Do they need to change? Uh, can anyone fly a drone? Well, uh, again, I think this goes back to my sort of sentiments about um, depending on, let's say, the weight class of the aircraft, you'd necessarily have different levels of qualification. I think drones, in terms of engaging children, for example, with STEM subjects, but specifically with engineering, have got great potential. And, and what I would urge the authorities to be careful of is not to make it so difficult to own and use a drone that you stop that sort of um, domestic usage and, and, and you necessarily remove the value of, of children engaging with technology through that route. Um, and if, if you do have a drone that weighs 249 grams, then I would expect that it would be a sensible argument to say you don't need the same level of qualification as if you were flying something which weighs 25 or 50 kilograms, which is very much more a more dangerous aircraft to be to be flying around and therefore completely different levels of skill and, and flight hours would be necessary before you could be let loose with one of those. So it, I think it's, it's, it's different different levels of requirement for different aircraft. And would you see a, a simple binary less than one weight and above one weight, or are we talking about uh, a gradation of different uh, levels? I'd, I'd probably say a gradation of different levels. Um, <clears throat> it's difficult because then how many levels do you have? It's, it, it's no longer binary, but it's still uh, the difference between, um, you know, if it's, if it's just under 25 kilograms, it's considered much less dangerous than if it's 25 kilograms and one gram over, you know. Um, and actually, they'd be just as dangerous as each other, two aircraft that are only two grams different, um, but they'd be considered completely differently in terms of regulation. So it, it's a difficult one. I, I, I don't think I want to be drawn on too much and commenting on that because I think it's such a difficult one and it's one that, that um, the, the CAA is going to have to get to grips with. How does the UK compare with other countries in terms of drones? Partly about R&D and partly about regulation. Um, so in terms of regulation, um, I've, I've flown 
um, with drones in lots of different countries, um, from developing countries up, up to you know countries like the UK and in Europe. Um, the UK has been a world leader in developing um, regulation for drones. There's no question of that. I know. I would say that. Well, I know for a fact that certainly in um, governmental and security circles, the UK is is typically invited to be at the top table when it's about talking about drone technologies. Um, and often we are looked to as the best sort of uh, best practice to to follow. And indeed, some of my colleagues have basically, for some developing countries, got them to to effectively adopt UK regulatory practices, almost verbatim, um, because they're so good. So UK is a, a leader in that, and and of course the UK is also a leader in development of drone technologies as well, um, specifically um, around. For, for me, certainly, I know drones flying in challenging environments and beyond visual line of sight flying, um, we've got some of the best expertise in the world here in the UK. And is that expertise located within the university sector or is it located within the industrial sector or, or a mixture of both? It's a mixture of both. For, for, the, for the really um, cutting edge stuff, invariably, it's in the universities first. But it's, um, I'm always astonished at how quickly stuff can leave the university and get into the commercial sector with drone technologies. It's, in general, it's a technology that's advanced so incredibly quickly that it's, you, you blink and you've missed a lot of stuff and, you, and you've, you've got behind. So, so some of the really exciting technology developments um, that, that have come from the UK have specifically been funded by the UK Research Councils, either the EPSRC or Innovate UK. Um, to do some really challenging technological um, feats in terms of not only flying drones beyond line of sight, but, but flying drones very close to civil structures or even landing on top of them um, whilst you're controlling from a you know significant distance away. Okay. And how do you think the uh, UK industrial take-up of drones is going uh, across a wide range of potential industries from construction to transport to agriculture and so on? Oh, that's an interesting question. So I think probably the uptake's been quickest in, in the construction industry, from what I've seen. I, I work a lot in the nuclear industry, and that's by necessity much slower, and that's because of the security restrictions on overflying these sites. Um, any nuclear site is de facto a no-fly zone for any aircraft, so you have to get special permissions to do that. But having said that, sites like Sellafield, for example, now have full-time drone teams and they're using those drones for things like building an asset inspection for mapping radiation fields around buildings and things like that. And, and so they're incredibly useful for those applications. And we're seeing that more and more in that sector. I also think an area that's got real potential for growth in the UK that's actually growing faster in other countries is in agriculture. Um, Japan is a very good example where actually the first major uses of drone technologies was in agriculture um, before it was in civil construction, for example, where um, they were using single rotor but very large sort of petrol powered drones for things like crop, crop spraying or, or for simple things like hyperspectral imaging of fields to see which part of the field needed fertilizer and which part didn't. So there's there's um, there's other countries that are ahead in some sectors and, and we're at the forefront in other sectors. The government's been talking about having a drones bill or possibly uh, a part of an aviation bill to do with drones. What do you think are the things that really should be in that future legislation? 
obviously we've got a lot of regulation in place and that regulation has been updated on a on a on a very regular basis and i think we have to make sure that any legislation that's passed is in lockstep with the regulations that have already been implemented and put in place um, because it would be silly not to pay attention to that. I think it's also important to pay attention to legisl legislation that's put it, being put in place in other countries as well to, to uh, not just give a sanity check to what might be suggested in our country, but also to appraise what's been done in others to work out whether that legislation has been overly draconian or overly loose. And almost what I, would, I wouldn't... I wouldn't dare to suggest what the legislation should be, but what I would urge is that legislation is well enough thought out that it doesn't um, doesn't scupper innovation and it doesn't scupper the educational value to, to children, students in particular, that drones can have. But at the same time, you have to weigh that against the potential threats that drones could pose if they're in the wrong hands. So it, it's it's quite a tricky thing to get the balance. And... This is where it really comes into focus with regards to legislation. It's, it's really important to try and get the legislation with the right balance, such such that it's 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 just the right just the right amount of legislation that we've got, and and not too little, not too much. Yes, it's going to be interesting to see how the government takes that forward over the coming months. Tom Scott, thank you very much indeed. That's my pleasure. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you found this podcast. Or you can check out further details about the Foundation at www.foundation.org.uk.